Hello, welcome to today's episode of the Suffolk Money Podcast, supported by Kingsfleet, providers of life-changing financial advice. As you know, as part of this project, we are looking to speak with people who make a difference across the county of Suffolk. Because ultimately, with money, there's only three things that you can do. You can spend it. And so we talk to entrepreneurs and business leaders. We uh, speak with financial experts about saving money, as that's the second thing you can do. The third thing you can do is give money away. And we speak with community groups and charities in that regard. So today we speak with Zoe Heyman-Cox, who has a very interesting business by the name of Sweet Williams Bakery. All will become clear as to why that name matters so much to Zoe, so please do listen. It's a very heartwarming story, even though Zoe and her family have gone through a time of great tragedy, but they have built something really quite remarkable. So we uh, turned to Zoe and uh, we got talking about her previous experiences and her work, uh, which involved uh, working in HR and the legal aspects of HR, and then how through some trying, difficult times, she has built a remarkable business with Sweet Williams Bakery. So here we are. This is Zoe Heyman-Cox. Zoe, it's great to be able to speak with you today. Um, we're talking on probably one of the hottest days of the year, maybe one of the hottest days of all time. <laughs> Can I see that you've got doors and windows open behind you? Yeah, I have. Um, this building isn't a building that was designed for what I do. So <laughs> the only um, air that I can get in currently is through large doors at the front of the building. Um, and the way that I'm set up at the moment, I also have a cardboard, a big piece of cardboard across it to stop dogs getting in, <laughs> um, which is kind of backed up by all of my cold drinks underneath. Um, oh. But it does get exceptionally hot in here. I can well imagine. And we're speaking at half past eight in the morning and uh, I can see the sun streaming in through those doors already. So yeah. I think you're going to have a hot day. Very. Um, so uh, we're going to come sort of go right the way back and uh, find out a little bit about your career prior to uh, starting uh, your current amazing business. Um, so how did you, so you were in, in the law before, involved in the law, uh, how did you get into that? Is that something that you decided when you were at school age that um, the legal profession was something that was of interest to you? Um, I don't think it was school age. I um, was really lucky. I went to Woodbridge School, a fantastic school, and um, I was quite focused on sciences when I was there. And in fact, I um, found myself going to Bangor University to do zoology. Huh. Um, and I got to <laughs> I got to Bangor University, and all of a sudden, I think the realization of what the career would be that I had at the end of it hit me. Um, and within a matter of hours, I honestly repacked my car and drove all the way back to Suffolk. Um, so this is Bangor in Wales, I'm assuming. Bangor in Wales. <laughs> so you're going as far west almost as you possibly yeah, could. absolutely, yeah. but it was fantastic for zoology, um, which is why I went there. And it, it just dawned on me that all I was going to, at that time, because we're talking um, late 90s, um, it was really standing up lecturing in universities or it was lab work. Um, and I wasn't very confident 
I couldn't see myself standing in front of people and teaching people. So I, like I said, I drove all that way home and um, I went through clearing and um, thought, well, what's my next, my next interest? And I'd done business studies um, at A-level as well as sciences. Um, so I thought, well, human resources, obviously the next natural choice. So I applied through clearing to De Montfort, um, got a place and within a matter of days, I was up there. I missed freshers. Um, and Maybe I that's a good thing. Hall. Yes, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> missed getting into halls. Um, so I was in private accommodation, but um, it was all good. And I did my degree. During my degree, we had um, a part of it on industrial relations. We were spoken to about ACAS. Um, I became very interested in that and um, was really disappointed at the end of the lecturing about ACAS and industrial relations that ACAS was a closed recruitment. So you had to be within the civil service in order to move into ACAS. That was very typical then. Right. Uh, luckily for me, um, after I left university and I found myself um, without a job, I went into a recruitment agency um, told them that I wanted to do headhunting of all things. And they, uh, about four hours later, they let me go with a job offer to come back the next day and start as a recruitment consultant there. So that was where I was, um, still thinking about ACAS. Um, and Maybe we ought to just explain for anyone who's not familiar with ACAS. Yeah. I grew up um, in the 70s and 80s and ACAS yeah. seemed to be on the news all, all the, time, the time. But um, yeah. <laughs> yes, so, ACAS um, is the Advisory Conciliation Arbitration Service. And what they do, um, they do a number of things, but the main historical thing was to settle employment disputes, um, strikes, when British Airways, for example, or Network Rail go on strike, then you would see ACAS convening meetings. Um, what they do um, in more recent times is to settle employment tribunal claims. Um, they have a helpline, for people to call and get advice. Um, and they also do a lot of training. So there's a whole host of things that ACAS do, but they are a civil service. Uh, they're not part of the civil service as such. Um, they're a quasi something or other. So it's attached to, but it's not as, as civil service as you can get. Um, but yes, so I, I was still really interested in that. And part of the job of recruitment is to go through the newspapers, probably online nowadays, but it was the newspapers then. <laughs> so you'd be looking through, you'd be looking for job adverts that said, um, or that didn't say, no agencies. So then you would phone them and you'd say, look, I've got someone, can I introduce them to you? And um, I remember turning the page on the paper and seeing this advert for ACAS and thinking, oh my goodness. And it was because um, in, the early 2000s, so we're talking probably 2003, ACAS was setting up a helpline in Bury St Edmunds. And I just thought that's it, that's what I've got to do. So I uh, applied and I think there was something ridiculous like a thousand, maybe more people had applied for these jobs and they took, I think six of us in the end. And um, I was absolutely over the moon, couldn't have been happier. Fantastic. Absolutely loved it. Fantastic. So that was um, 
in some ways you got the job that you'd always been wanting from that yeah. uh, even right back to that lecture in Leicester when you were sitting in the university yeah. 100% <laughs> and I actually sat in my interview they said to me um so if you got this job how would you feel and I, I said well to be honest with you I nearly turned around because I was so scared that I wouldn't get it um, I nearly didn't come at all. This is my dream. And I remember sitting and chatting to these um, these panel people about how much I wanted it. And it was genuine. I really did. And then, um, yeah, I, I spent 17 years at ACAS. Um, so it was my whole adult career, really, I see it. And um, I spent uh, less than a year on the helpline before getting promoted. Um, I became a conciliator um quite quickly then um because of the way that things worked out i then actually went back and managed that helpline um within a couple of months i was managing that and doing conciliation so looking after tribunal claims and looking after the team who um took the helpline calls um i was also doing some training so i would train other acas employees on contract law that was one of my first things that i yeah. trained people because um, that was my big interest from university and um, then I spent some time um, doing conciliation before moving into policy so I worked for head office and I would write the policies that ACAS staff or ACAS conciliators would have to apply in order to go about their day-to-day -day conciliation duties so I'd have to take um, pieces of law acts and so on and translate that into how it worked um, I worked in a small team doing that for about nine years. Right. And then after that, I moved, I got promoted again to become conciliation manager in back in Bury St. Edmunds. Um, and um, whilst doing that job, I also was a senior helpline manager for the helpline. So I went back to my roots, which was really nice, really enjoyed that. And I also was the deputy area director of ACAS East of England for a little while. So when the director would go away, I was in charge. And that's um, me. So it was genuinely the best thing ever. And all of this was before I was 37. Um, and that's me. Yeah, and I, I was so happy, so, so happy. And then um, it all sort of fell apart, really. All, all um, unraveled in a different yeah, way. Yeah, it did, it unraveled. So that must be, I mean, well, let's, walk through that what what happened because as somebody whose focus is on making sure employment works correctly and you know taking huge pieces of legislation and interpreting that for the you know smaller employers like me trying to understand what those things are like um to then go through an experience yourself that must have been incredibly difficult maybe you could talk us through what what, what you can yeah so i i am um found myself in a difficult position because I fell pregnant, which plenty of people do, that's not really the issue, um, but my pregnancy had all sorts of complications. Um, and at 12 weeks, so very, very early on, I discovered that um, my baby had um, a chromosomal abnormality called Edwards syndrome. Um, and that's actually the second most common syndrome after down syndrome and so many people don't know about it no um but what they do is they test for you at 12 weeks and um then they give you options if you have any chromosomal abnormalities 
um, including Downs, you're still offered the option to terminate. Well, it's not terminate, they say to interrupt your pregnancy, which I find odd, because um, you're not interrupting it, you're ending it. But in any case, um, we found ourselves in the position where we were being told that our baby did have a life limiting um, or incompatible with life condition. Um, and I, dealing with that on a personal level was one thing, but dealing with that in a work setting is um, a completely different thing. And I informed my employers straight away and they were very supportive, um, but there were some elements of that that weren't handled very well. There were some insensitivities um, and some other things that happened. And I found myself ultimately in the place where I couldn't take on my duties adequately. Um, I couldn't, before I would be listening to all of my conciliators problems, every problem they had with a case, I would listen, I would help them through it. Problems they had at home that they needed to offload in order to be able to cope with all of the other stuff. Um, you know, I would take all of that on board and I was working all the hours and I just couldn't do that anymore. Um, and so they were very supportive of me being off sick at that time. But as time went on, there were failings in the processes um, where, and by processes, I mean, where somebody is off sick and they're dealing with something, there are things that it would be best to do. Communications would be best done in a certain way and so on. And I found that very frustrating because I felt like we should have got that right, but we didn't get that right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the fact that I had this bereavement looming meant that my employer didn't know how to contact me. They didn't know what the boundaries were and I was so open with them all the time I kept saying can you give me information I was asking for information on the there were massive changes going on at ACAS it wasn't a great time to be off and I was still focused on being in it but I just wasn't there right then and I needed to know all of that information because I couldn't go back in however many months time and not know mm. but there was a misinterpretation somehow and it all got very um difficult and ultimately, I had no real option other than to take them to tribunal. Um, and so I did just that. Um, we didn't make it that far. We settled and I'm not bound by any confidentiality, but I don't really want to go into all of the sort of finer details. Yes. It was a nasty experience and I felt completely shattered by it. Mm. And um, I was shattered by it for a long time mm. um, I I was then dealing with grieving ahead of my son's death mm. but also grieving this absolute passion of mine mm. um, and I genuinely didn't really know where I was after that because this was my whole life I'd I'd only done that really um, and Apart from in my gap year, actually, I was a zookeeper, but that's another story. <laughs> I was doing zoology, wasn't I? So, you know, um, but I, it was my whole life. And um, and then I also potentially wasn't going to be a mother in the normal sense. And it's just an, a real, real tough situation. Mm. Um, I had a lot of counselling 
and um, that helped me enormously. And I had a lot of support from each, I had a lot of support from Petals, which is um, a, a charity which looks after uh, couples who are going through loss at any stage. Um, and they're absolutely fantastic. Um, Ipswich Hospital arranged my Petals counselling. Um, mm. I really couldn't have survived without that. Um, and I also used a private counsellor as well. Um, but all of this, um, you know, was was really challenging. And like I said, I didn't know where to go. And I sort of lived off my settlement for as long as I could. And I left in January 2020. And at some point during the summer of 2020, somebody said to me, um, you should start doing afternoon teas. Now, I like to cook. I've always liked to cook, but I wouldn't have said to you that I was a baker. There's a lot of us around. You just want to experiment in the kitchen and so on, likes food. And someone said to me, oh, you should do it. And um, I briefly did some work for um, the Kes... Uh, for the Martlesham country market. So the country markets are um, a group of markets around all over the country, I believe. Um, and people who make their own produce go there and sell it. And they asked me to do some meals. So I was doing meals for, um, I suppose, older customers who, who might like to just get something and microwave it. So I was making nice hearty meals. Lovely. And then I decided to do um, to introduce them to an afternoon tea at the market and that's where it started so I got my first sale and then um, I thought well I quite enjoyed making those cakes and things so I think I'm going to try this and I'd seen an advert on Facebook someone else selling afternoon teas so I I just kind of found it, it, it <laughs> so this was so we're talking here the vet sort of early stages of COVID, I guess, where not many people are moving around, people aren't yes. able to go out for to, for a treat. So Absolutely. you were organising effectively a ready-made yeah. delivery. So there was a massive, it was second lockdown. So we'd been through the first lockdown, we'd come out of it and we'd gone back in. And um, people were really into, and businesses were really into trying to recreate their menus and their ideas so that they could be delivered and distributed around two people and um at that time it was a case of you'd knock on the door and stand 10 feet away stand the end of the drive yeah, yeah exactly. leave it on the doorstep yeah exactly and um so i could see that other people were doing these afternoon teas and i really didn't have a business plan or a model in mind i just thought that i'd sort of make some sandwiches and some cakes and um as I was talking to this friend about it, it sort of just came about that um, in Williams, my son, um, William, uh, in his funeral, I had the Sweet William flower. And I just thought, oh, Sweet William's Bakery. And it genuinely just came to me like that. Yeah. And it was perfect. And I, I honestly believe that it's just one of those things that was meant to be. And it came, it sort of came to me without thought and at a time where, you know, I was in a real muddle and um, something about that is just perfect. Mm, absolutely. So uh, we ought to just fill in the, the, 
the few gaps, which I appreciate are difficult ones, but when you left ACAS, you had all the issues going on there, but mm -hmm. obviously you, you made reference to the fact that um, your, your son was still due. So I'm sorry, I'm going yep. back a little bit. Yep. But, um, and then you, you gave birth to, to William. Yes, um, so I managed, or William managed, to survive an entire pregnancy. Um, there was a lot of uh, doctor's visits, uh, hospital visits and so on, mm. but the, we were very, very, very supported by um, Ipswich Hospital, and um, in particular our bereavement midwife, Ali Britt, who is a fantastic woman. Mm. And um, we... I had a condition called polyhydramnios and it's linked to Edward syndrome and what that means is that you have too much um, amniotic fluid so you become very large in your pregnancy and um, but there's very little baby and very very much more liquid mm -hmm. and um, actually um, it's important for me to say that when I was when I attended my first grievance meeting with ACAS um, when I raised a grievance, I had just come out of hospital having lost five litres of <laughs> amniotic fluid. And I went to my grievance meeting and I sat and it may be too much for some people to hear, but the amniotic fluid would continue to be made <laughs> and it would continue to come out of me. And I sat for about three hours, not realising that when I stood up, I would lose it all again. Mm -hmm. And Goodness. so enormously traumatic, but I didn't let on because I was in work mode I was having you know it was yeah. such an important yeah. thing but I I lost my water with him at 30 or so weeks and I had no idea that a woman could lose all of their amniotic fluid and continue to be pregnant <laughs> I went home I was monitored for infections um but he managed for another six plus weeks and um and he was born alive and he did live for two hours oh. and um, he got to spend most of those two hours with his dad which I was absolutely adamant um, must happen because I'd had all that time and I felt like he hadn't so he got the bulk of that two hours um, and very perfectly William came back to me and died in my arms um, and there was a there was a real peaceful nice sense about the whole thing it's a really distressing situation for anyone else to hear but honestly it was perfect mm. because I needed William to do what he needed to do um and I hoped that we would get to meet him and it all it all just worked mm. um and then luckily for us we got a further two weeks with him while he was at the funeral home he did magnificently because um, it isn't always the way that you can have as long with a tiny, a tiny child. So mm -hmm. um, we got to go and see him across two weeks and then um, we had his cremation. Um, but in between that, after I'd given birth that evening, William and I were moved to each. And we had, um, I suppose you'd call it a suite at each. And it was there that I was able to have family come to visit him right. um, in a safe safe mental space for me um a safe space for him um 
and we were so well looked after by each. I can't even tell you how much food they gave us. Just sat <laughs> all the time. It was absolutely marvellous. And again, for those who aren't familiar, that's East Anglian's Children's Hospice. That's right. And they have a location in Ipswich. We do. It's called the Treehouse. And that's where you were situated. Yes, Treehouse. yes, the Treehouse. So that, uh, in some ways, that must have helped, given the fact that you'd had this ongoing sort of looking forward to something that you didn't know how it was going to happen and whether William was going to be able um, to be born naturally as as he was, mm -hmm. as you, you were able to give birth to him. So that whole time, and I can understand now why you're doing the job that you so wanted to do and absolutely dreamed of. And then you had this new aspect of life coming, a new plan, and then that too was not just cast in doubt but given a huge black cloud over it in the sense mm -hmm. of what was going to be happening and then to juggle both the breakdown of your working relationship plus mm -hmm. deal with this horrendous situation mm -hmm. that, juggling those two things must have been well impossible I can I totally understand mm -hmm. how you needed the support that you did yeah it was it was really impossible and looking back on it um I don't think that I had a clear idea of how bad it was mm. um and I yeah I, I don't know I don't really know how I made it through it no. except to deal with each moment I would walk a lot I found that taking step after step after step was therapeutic mm. um, and it didn't it didn't get any easier um it's it still isn't easier mm. um but you have different ways of coping and i feel very much that this business that i have now yeah um, i pour my heart and soul into it and work seven days a week because it is my connection to my son William. Um, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely which is a gift and um the complete opposite of a gift at the same time because I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah, we need to explore all your working pattern. Uh, we'll do that in a moment. I think um, I'm just sort of particularly struck by you, obviously somebody who just gives everything to what they're doing um, and hence why this sort of difficulty of, you know, having to leave something that you loved with your previous employment. You'd already been focusing on something else that you were going to love, which is being a mother um uh, now you have those but in different ways um yes. so it's remarkable about the business but you you have a daughter now as well we need to yeah. yes do you need um, to mention that yes so um I, it won't be unusual to people who have gone through loss before um but there's a need still to be a mother um that's a tricky one actually because that language isn't great. I was I was a mother, um, mm, but to yeah. physically have have a child in front of you. Yes. Um, and my husband and I obviously had talked about it. We knew that we still wanted um, to have a living child. And um, thirteen months to the day that William was born and died, little Amelia <laughs> joined our family. Lovely. Um, and there were so many bizarre coincidence between her and him even down to some of the medical care I got with the same people that 
and this is pure chance because you know shifts in hospitals are shifts in hospitals yeah but there was a lady who dealt with me while I was losing my water with William she actually delivered Amelia Amelia rather than me losing my water um Amelia was born half in the sack so she was a little um rarity um you know it's just it was amazing but 13 months of a day um and she's now uh four in September and um she's an absolute treasure Lovely. And she's very wise beyond her years. I swear that she's got William in her. Yeah. Which is that little bit older, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And no doubt you'll be telling her about a big brother. Um, oh, do you talk knows. to her now? Yes, all about... the time. Yeah, all the time. Fantastic. Actually, she, she has a really good grasp on it. Um, we, had, we had a book, or we have a book called The Invisible String, which I would 100% recommend to any families that are going through any loss, not a child necessarily but it speaks about how love is like an invisible string between two people. And so wherever you are on the earth or in heaven or whatever, you are attached by this invisible string. And she'll talk about how she's just tugged on his invisible string or, you know, it's it's really nice. And she's grasped that and she talks about him a lot. She talks about why she's sad that he came first and not her. And I find, I'm finding that harder and harder every time she, because she's getting older and her conversation is much more grown up um but she she tells me she misses him and it's it's very sad it's it's a whole other dimension to grief that I'm now going to be walking through as well yeah yeah and and I guess if there's any comfort to all of that is the fact that as you said you have the time with William so you have um you have experiences that you can talk through with Amelia yes. in that case. Yes. So um, you can describe him and you've got yes. something very tangible to relate to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Um, I did. I'm sorry, I've sort of taken you back on some things. You were in full flow and it was great just talking about how the bakery got up and running. So we go back to lockdown and we go back to people wanting to recreate experiences, maybe having a small what was it six people we could have I think it was yeah in your garden yeah <laughs> so you were always producing um afternoon teas for six people I suppose is <laughs> yeah pretty much pretty much um yes yeah, so I mean that was good because I so in October 2020 when I started Sweet Williams um registered the company um you know registered with the council and all of the things that you have to do um and I was taking bookings in and like you said they were for small groups of people um often we were delivering and someone would say we're in the back garden um I um was also I also started doing some postal brownie boxes so you could get really slim boxes which would fit say six or eight pieces of brownie and I could post them post them to London post them to um or places in the Midlands Manchester um that was always terrifying to see how they came out. Um, but yes, it was just afternoon teas, really. I launched a classic afternoon tea, which is your typical sandwiches, um, sausage rolls, scone, cream jam, and two items of cake. And then I also had people asking for savoury versions. So I developed my savoury tea. 
and in that um, were sandwiches, sausage rolls, a cheese scone with chive butter, um, a scotch egg, and then another pastry. And the scotch eggs, I kid you not, they're as big as my hand. Um, and you would get half an egg per person. So I was doing boxes for two, or I was doing boxes for one. And it was a massive hit, massive hit. And you were producing these at home at this yeah. point? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with Amelia in the other room. <laughs> so I had a gate on the kitchen. Um, hygiene issues, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, so I had a gate on the kitchen and um, I'd be sort of, I'd make sausage rolls, or I'd make the pastry, put it in the fridge and then go and see to her. And then I'd come back, wash my hands, um, you know, roll out the pastry, then go and see to her while they were in the oven. And it was very much a kind of a long process. But my deliveries, I would always say, I deliver between one and four. and that helped because Amelia was at the age where she was still napping so I could sling her in the car drive and she'd go to sleep and it was perfect so I'd be morning and you couldn't um, hang around anywhere anyway so you yeah, you wouldn't be yeah. away from the car for any time so yeah exactly so yeah pull up outside of someone's house drop the stuff on their doorstep yep. knock on the door step back um I had t-shirts straight away Sweet Williams Bakery so they'd see who I was well, yeah and um yeah, it was perfect. And we spent we spent a long time in the car. <laughs> um, and I um, found that in so in November, a customer who had had a tea from me realized that she or November slash December, she realized that she had um, the opportunity if things opened up and we could go back to a more normal life to do an event that she would normally do every May. And it's for the Bearded Collie Club or Association, I think. Um, so dog owners, bearded collie owners would go camping and meet up with one another. And she wanted for their last day of the weekend to have afternoon tea. And I had a booking for 60, something like that, come in. And panic immediately set in because I couldn't do that in my kitchen. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was doing kind of 16 or 18 or something a day. Um, and that was a struggle because of finding the space to be able to box it all up. Um, and so I started to look around and I was Googling, I was searching for premises and places were available, but they were like Debenhams because mm. they'd just left. And, you know, there weren't the little properties that I needed. Mm. I went and looked at one place. Um, it looked great, but it was too far away. Um, and then what I really needed was an industrial estate, I thought, an indus industrial estate with like a kitchen unit. Yep. But I always had this idea that Sweet Williams would be a tea room and I didn't want to get into a lease. And then the world opened up and people went back to normal and no one wanted deliveries. Mm. I thought, what am I going to do? I needed to be able to hedge my bet. And um, so in April, this is cutting it really fine. I'm still saying yes to this job. In April, I wrote to Ipswich Borough Council and asked them whether, because I live in Chantry, um, right on the edge of Chantry, there's nothing in Chantry Park, no refreshments. I wrote to them and said, why is that? You have things in other parks. Is it a conscious decision you've made not to? Or is it just that you haven't found anybody? And I said, I'd like to put myself forward. And they wrote back to me straight away and said, can you come and meet? And they showed me around the Bowles Pavilion. 
and the bowls club had left during lockdown and it was perfect i loved it straight away i was really terrified but i loved it um and, and that's where you are this morning as yeah, we're talking to you yeah, yeah. and it, i moved in the day before i did 62s <laughs> i actually ended up doing all the cooking at home and transporting it here and boxing it here in the bigger space um but so i didn't really feel like i was here until a few days later when i actually settled in but yeah. So, so what do you offer now? Do you um is uh do you offer the facilities for people to come along and and sit outside uh, uh, to use the facilities at, at Chartree Park? Yes. So every day, apart from Friday, I have a counter open, and on the counter, I have a selection of cakes, brownies, blondies, flapjacks, um, some large cakes that you can have a slice of, um, scones, cheese scones, plain scones also some savouries and people come to the counter can grab a drink grab something to eat we have tables outside and um, we also have obviously the big bowls lawn where people can sit bring chairs or whatever um, and then people can also come and take things away i have people who come from nearby workplaces grab something and go um, i also still offer my afternoon teas people can collect those here they can have them delivered still and they can collect them and eat them in the park or eat them anywhere else they want. Um, and I have moved into celebration cakes as well, which is something that I never thought I would because I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. But um, people started asking me, do you make cakes? And I sort of would say, no, I don't. Um, but what are you looking for? And then eventually I sort of said, OK, well, I have a go. And now I'm doing some weeks, I'm doing eight, eight cakes. <laughs> as well as, as, well as and all of my teas. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I must tell you at this point, I have one oven. I have one oven, the same as you would have in your house. I don't have a catering oven. Um, yes. and I have a kitchen which is smaller, I would imagine, than your house kitchen. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, the average box room. So um, happily, I applied for planning permission. And in February this year, I was given planning permissions turn the pavilion into a tea room so I will eventually be able to have people come in and sit inside as well. Uh, now on days like today that's not critical I suppose because um, but when you get to um, autumn or winter I guess you'll be wanting to have that as an option. Yeah so I've lived through a winter an autumn and a winter already mm. honestly I was terrified but I was really surprised afterwards and um, it worked out that February was a higher um, a higher revenue month for me than last August. Goodness. Which is incredible. And I think actually February still, I don't know if any, maybe one month this year has been in February. Um, but I just found that I was able to um, keep up with um, delivering and people like my stuff enough to come here and run home and get back warm. So I, I use Facebook a lot. And I post what I have on the counter. Um, if I can, I post it the day before. Um, and otherwise, I do it on that morning. And I find that people will ask me to reserve things and they'll run down and grab it. And um, 
they know that once it's gone, it's gone. So that works nicely. Have you ever any fights break out? I'm just fascinated by the dedication of your customers. <laughs> no, but I do. No, no I one's do fighting over the last brownie. Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of does, it kind of does get a bit like that. Um, I'm just thinking you need to use your conciliation skills. With, yes, uh, absolutely. Well, no, I find that I have to do that when people are trying to choose who's paying. Um, that's that's always a challenge. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of. Um, I really like the fact, and I get, I honestly have to pinch myself all the time. I couldn't believe that people wanted to buy things I was making to start with, and I still can't. But I also, I, I post something on Facebook, and I find it absolutely amazing that within a few minutes, I've got so many comments, so many likes, so many people are engaged with my posts. And people, I've had people here in their pajamas who've been at home on like a Sunday in their like loungewear and they've said well I knew that you had this and I thought it was going to go so I've run down here in my pyjamas and I'm so sorry I think it's fantastic I love it it's lovely and of course whilst we all know that there's 24 hour seven food available everywhere mm -hmm. the fact that people want something that's freshly made produced locally and they're supporting something like yeah uh, you know that small business that you have I think that's it's one of the things that I just think makes Suffolk great that people yeah. want to do that yeah i was no i was nowhere near prepared for how much support i got from the very start um in my first year and it's very hard to gauge how popular you are um but in my first year in terms of page likes on facebook i made it past three thousand. now i i think that's amazing i think yeah. it's genuinely amazing and um, people, the return customers that I have, and also I've had, I've had a couple of experiences where people have, it's always been like a little fan thing. So I went outside to give somebody something. I walked past a lady at a table and she was on her phone saying, oh, you'll never guess where I am. And um, the person must have said, oh, I don't know. And she said, well, yes, I'm there and I'm having a cheese scone with chai butter. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's amazing. And other people have stood at the counter and they've gone, hang on a minute. I've, I've had an afternoon tea from you. Someone bought it for me. And it was amazing. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and I love that. I really, really love it. Really love it. Because it feels extra special. Yeah. Um, and I have terrible imposter syndrome. So I still can't, you know, this long in, I can't think how many months I am in now, but I still can't believe that I'm actually doing it and people are actually enjoying my food. It's brilliant. But on the other side of that, are you still enjoying it? I guess that's critically important to all of this. I am, I am. Um, I, it's very challenging. Um, seven days a week, I'm here. Um, my daughter goes to nursery mornings for four days a week on the fifth day and every afternoon she's with me um her dad um, my husband he works nights and days works for network rail um so some weekends i also have her and it's, it is really challenging um i really do enjoy it i've been um in two minds on some occasions about the location which is heartbreaking just because the first summer i had some antisocial behavior issues which the police had to get involved in and that I got a lot of support from the community for, which was marvellous. Um, and there's still ongoing issues with it being very isolated and me being here alone a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of 
much is this right is it not right but I just have this underlying feeling all the time that I can't let this go it's such a marvelous location it's so beautiful it's so peaceful people are so pleased to have something here and I feel like it is the place for William mm. um and um I do I really do enjoy it I'm enjoying learning different things all the time I I have lots of firsts. People ask me for things and, and I'll post afterwards saying, oh, it was my first time doing this. Um, <laughs> you know, and but it's great. It's great. That needs to keep happening. So let's just be clear about, first of all, how people can find you. How can they find you online through Facebook? You said that's best thing. Facebook and Instagram. Yes. Um, I am based in Chantry Park and I am located close to the Sue Ryder home. Um, so the best way to access me is to come in via Hadley Road um, and then there are two car parks available and then you just have to wander a little way and you'll find Bowling Green and there I am. And that's behind the Sue Ryder home if you yeah. come in from that direction yeah, and, and we, we really ought to there might be some people who are rather concerned that there's Bowls Club members playing around your customers. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, that's not the case. The Bowls Club have left. Um, they disbanded, in fact. Um, the members all went off to other locations. And um, I have former Bowls players coming um, and being very engaged with what I'm doing, very supportive. I have some who comment on how the lawn doesn't look very good anymore. I'm very sorry, <laughs> but I'm too busy baking. Um, but I do put lawn games out there. So if anyone does fancy a little game of badminton or um, Jenga or whatever, I, I do put some things up there. Fantastic stuff. That is great. How, how do you see things developing as we close, Zoe? How do, how do you see things developing from here? Because, well, I mean, I guess you couldn't have predicted two years ago that you'd be doing what you're doing now. No. Um, so I guess that might be a difficult question for you to answer. But, um, yeah, how do you look ahead and see things from I here? do have some firm plans um it's my biggest challenge and the first challenge i need to um overcome is funding the work here because i come from nothing i have no um financial like support behind me so it's a case of the business runs really well but it's all plowed straight back in so that's the initial challenge is finding a way to fund it and get the work done but where i see the business going is that I have the tea room and then I don't want to give up the cakes and the events and things that I do. So I feel like I will also need another location, which is that unit I spoke of earlier, where I can just do um, the bigger things because right now I use the whole space. And if I'm doing a big tea boxing up, I'll use the whole building. Um, and when I'm doing cakes, I come and sit in the main room and decorate them. Customers watch me doing them. I won't be able to do that anymore. Um, so it's about trying to balance all of I need all of the parts of my business, I think, to make me work. Um, but I won't be able to do that in this space for much longer once the work is done. Um, but I, I had I had an idea that I would be having people inside by this winter. Reluctantly, I would say that probably isn't going to happen because I don't have a firm plan of how to pay for that right now. Um, but I have the planning permission. This is the important thing. And yeah. I guess as long as they continue to support me and wait for me. <laughs> um, people are offering to paint and things like that. Um, so that's lovely. Yeah. Lovely. And again, just to confirm, you're open between 10 
and is it three? Yeah, ten and three. Ten um, and three, but every day apart from Friday. Friday. I'm still here and the doors are still open, but yeah. I am closed. But you um, won't get served if you turn no, up unless you're pre-ordered. Unless you pre-ordered, <laughs> that's right. I have people collecting <laughs> things as well. Yeah, yeah very good. So it has been. It's an amazing story, and great to hear all about it. And I just, you know, the the link to William is just amazing, and mm. uh, lovely to to know that Amelia is all part of this as well. Yeah. Um, she's going to be some entrepreneur as she grows up, seeing yeah, all the things that you've done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! It's an amazing story, and, and um, I hope we've just made some people aware of where you are and what you're doing. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you once again for joining us on the Suffolk Money Podcast supported by Kingsfleet. We are so pleased that you've been able to join us today. Uh, please do subscribe so that you know when the next podcast becomes available. And if you can give us a five-star rating, then it will just help others discover what we've been putting together over this time. I'm extremely grateful to Zoe Hayman-Cox for her time uh, in putting this recording together. Uh, we were recording it early on a Monday morning, one of the hottest days of the year, and I could—I uh, was just very aware that Zoe had a difficult day ahead of her, and I'm sure she was extremely busy throughout the rest of the day. I'm also indebted to the team who really helped me put this together. I just do the easy bit of speaking with people. To Joy Day for working on our website and our Facebook page, making sure that our graphics and visuals are all up to date. Uh, to Sally Birch, booking speakers, to Kevin Birch for his skills in producing the finished article and completing all the editing that is needed. So please do join us next time on the Suffolk Money Podcast, where we find out another interesting story from the people of Suffolk. <laughs>